0: Hello, I'm Garni Barkadarian of the Pacific Neuroscience Institute and CNS member for more than 10 years. What I love most about being a member is access to cutting-edge science and the opportunities that have advanced my career. I've also gained new colleagues and lifelong friends. Being a CNS member has been so rewarding. The value of membership cannot be defined by a number. Join me and the over 10,000 neurosurgeons who are making a difference in the world. Visit cns.org slash membership podcast today.
1: All right, welcome everyone to another exciting episode of the CNS Journal podcast. Uh, My name is Brian and I'm the fourth year neurosurgery resident at, at the Medical University of South Carolina. I'm honored to have organized and hosted this October edition of the podcast. We're fortunate to have a great group of guests joining us today to discuss this newly published article. Digital Biomarkers and the Evolution of Spine Care Outcome Measures, Smartphones, and Wearables. To get us started, I'd like to have our guests introduce themselves. First, we're privileged to have the senior author of the study, Dr. Eric Orman. Dr. Orman, do you mind introducing yourself? Of course.
2: Um, So I'm Eric Orman. I'm an assistant professor of neurosurgery, radiology, and data science at NYU Langdon Health. And I have a background in uh, mathematics and computer science prior to pursuing a career in neurosurgery.
1: Great. We're glad to have you. Additionally, we have Dr. Christoph Hofstetter, who's joining us today as our guest interviewer. Dr. Hofstetter, do you mind introducing yourself to our listeners?
0: Hey there. Uh, Yeah, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited about this. Uh, I'm Christoph Hofstetter, professor at the University of Washington uh, my interests are in uh, spinal cord injury. That's my basic science interest, and then uh, in uh, clinically, I do a lot of uh, endoscopic spine surgery, where we have started to implement uh, actually exactly what we're going to talk about: uh, digital sort of uh, you know outcome tracking. So I'm super excited about this discussion.
1: Nice. And lastly, we have our esteemed committee co-chair and veteran journal club podcaster, Dr. Rafael Vega. For our new listeners out there, Dr. Vega, do you mind introducing yourself before we jump into the article?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I've been enjoying uh, this uh, podcast now for several years. And uh, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Vega. I'm from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. And um, my interest, of course, is uh, neurosurgical oncology. Uh, But of course, this is a very interesting topic, a great paper,
0: and uh, we're very excited to get it going. So,
1: Awesome. Uh, so thank you all for the introductions. Again, we have a really exciting and diverse group here today to discuss this pertinent topic of technology and spine surgery. I'd like to start off with Dr. Orman. Uh, could you please give us the background behind the study? What led you to tackling this interesting topic? And then you mind just taking us through some of the key findings of the article?
2: Yeah, um, where did, I think um, maybe the, um, some ways, the genesis for the study is back when I was a postdoc at Google, um, I did some work on wearables for Parkinson's disease. And we're specifically trying to see if we could identify the on-off fluctuations of levodopa using um, Google Watches. And that sort of, in my mind, I guess, planted the seed of the kind of power of mobile devices, but especially wearables, to track neurologic phenomenon. And um, on coming to NYU and really engaging a lot with our spine faculty, I think there's as we, the more we talked, I sort of related this experience to talk to them. I think everyone became increasingly enth- enthusiastic about you know, this. These are programs that we need to start in our nurses department, not you know, tomorrow or today. But really, we should have started yesterday and certainly it's something we wanted to launch. And you know, we thought that is a practical aspect of really launching these programs in our department. First, we wanted to just kind of see what was out there and see what other people were doing, which led us to kick off this review.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I think it's uh, it was really interesting to to read your your background and uh, see kind of uh, all of the experience you have with artificial intelligence and machine learning. So um, I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion we have here. Do you mind just giving us some of the, the key findings you have from this article?
2: Yeah. Um, I think that the to summarize the the thrust of the field and the focus on sort of digital biomarkers is really a push to try to find objective quantitative biomarkers for nursery' conditions in general, but especially in this article we focus on spine health and I think there's been a phenomenal push over the past 10 years on patient reported outcomes measures, pros, and trying to capture subjective metrics of quality of life, but also realization that as important as those might be, they're still not objective quantitative measures of quality of life. And maybe even more importantly, this notion that even in the cases where we are capturing those in clinic, either in a qualitative fashion, let say having patients walk and observing them as part of a neurologic exam, or even in a quantitative fashion, like a timed get-up-and-go test, that we're still not capturing their actual, how those neurologic phenomena we're observing in clinic are actually impacting their quality of life in terms of their, what we call, free-living activity. We discussed the manuscript, you know, how is, how is their neurologic deficits leading to a day-to-day impact on their quality of life and their ability to ambulate and achieve things and that's something that's fundamentally challenging to do as a spine surgeon and we don't go home with our patients, we don't see how they. interact on a daily basis and that's the opportunity that wearables then open up that ability to assess patients either via active tasks in the environment or perhaps even more excitingly with passive tasks that just record how is their day-to-day life going how are they able to ambulate how are they able to accomplish activities And so it's that continuous passive monitoring that wearables and smartphones unlock that is both so exciting but also as our i think maybe the main takeaway of the mainstream is how incredibly heterogeneous that environment is across both the hardware stack in terms of the devices between smartphone vendors and wearable vendors but then also in terms of the software stack in terms of the increasingly large number of apps that have access to this data. And you know, I think, it, if anything, it's a very exciting ecosystem for spine surgeons, but also increasingly a very confusing one for spine surgeons and their patients. And the hope is that the review manuscript would try to encapsulate that current state of the environment, maybe make it a little less confusing.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for summarizing all of that. Yeah, as a, a, a resident, I'm really starting to get into the clinic now and I'm starting to experience all of the the difficulty of getting a really accurate clinical exam and, and trying to relate that to how the patient is actually doing outside of the hospital and how is their quality of life. So I thought this was a really, really pertinent article to me, myself, um, and a lot of the residents who I know listen to this. But next up, I would like to open this up to Dr. Hofstetter. If you, uh, do you happen to have any questions for Dr. Orman?
0: Yeah, no, I think uh, I really enjoyed uh, reading your article. Um, and uh, you know, we stumbled into this whole field uh, while you stumbled into the field very scientifically and trying to figure out the on-off periods in Parkinson patients. Uh, we stumbled into that field because we innovated spine surgery in a way that patients were not coming back to the clinic appointments. Uh, in fact, we saw that only forty-two percent of our patients returned after the full endoscopic spine surgery to the clinic appointments. Um, and while, you know, we're looking at scientific objective and subjective uh, outcomes in the end of the day, it's very um, difficult for a surgeon when you don't know how your patients are doing to keep going. Uh, and that's something that uh, I didn't see in the article. And I actually wanted to ask you about that because it's like, uh, you know, In order to maintain a system of like being a surgeon and then doing all the work that we do, um, you know, where in your article, what is the impact for the healthcare providers and where do you see that helping them and where do you see the role of these new novel tools because again, uh, you know, when surgeons and physicians see another EMR and another yet to fill out more work for us to do, we typically get a cramp in our stomach so uh, where do you see this Helping us.
2: I mean, I think you actually raised an excellent point where it can help us in terms of letting us have a better insight into our real-world outcomes. Um, both in terms of dealing with missingness, I, certainly, I think especially for you know the more minimally invasive procedures, you know, endoscopic spine surgeries, microdiscectomies do tend to be patients that you know we see them for a couple months in clinic and then they vanish into the world, and we don't really get that long-term follow up on them and, you know, being able to get that feedback um, <clears throat> for longer periods of time can be both rewarding or just sort of maybe solve the missingness in terms of loss to follow up. If you have that kind of digital measure for them in the wild. But I think more importantly, giving us the more accurate follow up. Um, you know, I think we mentioned in the paper and I know it's one of uh, Brian's questions is on you know, the Hawthorne effect. And I think it's a it's a very it's a very um, important effect to be aware of that, you know, patients, just by the fact of us formally observing them will behave differently. And that's certainly, you can, I think we all have those examples of patients who, you know, they put on a really great face in clinic, but their families pull aside and say, hey, look, they're barely functional at home. And that's something that, you know, we don't have a great insight into that. And suddenly wearables, which let us, you know, in a sense, journey with our patients into their homes, into their everyday lives, can start to give us insight into that, I think to your other point, though, the user experience of end of thing, end of thing for surgeons is, you know, how does this, in, the very nitty gritty, how does this impact our practices? Like, is it another, more, you know, websites we have to go to more, you know, more stuff that gets layered into already very busy clinical appointments, more graphs to look at, more numbers to track. <clears throat> and I think the user experience is, a big barrier to which we maybe don't mention as much in the paper but certainly a barrier to adoption and um certainly it's also potentially an opportunity right? and i do think that the the off the digital offerings especially in terms of the app ecosystem that ultimately are do see more widespread adoption will be the ones that really focus on surgeon user experience maybe a little more so than necessarily on the downstream technology stack um and i think all this would be happier with more rudimentary biomarkers if they were more easily integrated into our practices than maybe something really fancy that we had to struggle to access every visit. The um, And, and I, I do think maybe the last point is as far as that integration goes, and I know this is the, the approach we're taking at NYU is really working with our EHR vendor to try to to the best of our abilities kind of uh, de-leverage our wearables vendors and get their data into our EHR, into our clinic notes and visits to make it as seamless as possible to try to lower that kind of barrier to utilization.
0: You know, I think that's um, just to uh, respond to that. So I don't know um, if you know, but uh, at the University of Washington, we have been working on our own project for the last seven years. We call it, uh, you know, Spine Healthy. Uh, and our first generation was exactly as you described, uh, you know, where we collected outcomes and it was very sort of like, you know, simple. It was basically just like a tool to collect outcomes. And you know what we saw, it didn't work. You know, if you if you put an app on the patient's phone, they're not going to do it. Uh, and so what we realized then is that, um, and that's the issue uh, is, for example, if you watch, you know, for example, Star Trek, you know, they don't land their big mothership on the planets. They have these little sort of, either they beam themselves or they have tiny little spaceships that they land, like lunar landers. Um, And I think the the, the issue that um, physicians and surgeons have is we are trying with our EMRs, which are the big spaceships, we are trying to land on these little, uh, you know, comets and planets um, and it just doesn't work. and, uh you know I've we actually going in parallel here at the University of Washington both uh, with epic as well as with our spine healthy app um, and it has been very uh interesting to see uh, where one warps and warp speed away the other one is just you know stuck in com- committee work uh, and uh, it's very very interesting um, but I think during those seven years I've realized a couple of things uh, you know with this uh, you know number one is that, you know the patient needs to have a benefit from this nobody's going to do even move their finger if they don't have a benefit and I, I thought the section of the paper was interesting where you have the different objective measurements where they have to walk for six minutes get in and out of the chair for 10 times um that's going to be you know if to reward that somehow and i think that's going to be interesting you can you know maybe make it a little game you know where you just like have them challenge each other or something like that so i think but again anywhere you have to motivate people is going to be a challenge um what we found is the biggest motivator. We have uh, we published a paper in JNS Spine just, uh, I think, a half a year ago, where we asked them what they want to get out of this. Um, and we asked more than 100 patients, and their responses were uh, out of the system like this. They want to communicate with a doctor, because uh, believe it or not, right now it's very, very difficult for a patient to get a hold of a physician. Um, for good reasons, because I mean, otherwise you would be bombarded. But I feel that a patient that you operate on, I'm sure you've heard, you own a patient that you operate on. So I think for me, a patient that I operate on has a right to get a hold of me. And, you know, if they want to get a hold of me, they should get a hold of me. Um, that was number one. Number two was they wanted to just see the films of the pathology and sometimes even interoperative. And number three, they wanted the physical therapy instructions. So that's what I want a patient get out of it. So I think if we answer these and, and fulfill them, and some of that was in their paper too what they wanna get out of it, then they're going to do it, right? If there's a benefit to that. Um, as a physician, um, I, I don't like it when I spend five hours in the OR and then I never see the patient again. It's, it burns me out if I don't see the results of my work. Um, and so for me, being able to see uh, every patient I operate on every day, how they're doing within a fraction of a second, because it's just on my screen has changed the way i practice medicine um, and uh, we have not only done this for myself but we have now at 12 universities um, where we can now uh, monitor these outcomes uh, but also learn from each other um, and we just had a meeting at the seattle science foundation where these 12 surgeons were together and we can learn from surgeons like um, dr telfian who does those surgeries awake um, Peter Derman who does them in a private practice setting, uh, John Ogunlande, who sets them up in St. Louis at the university, and so looking at these different surgeons and learning from each other with objective markers has changed everything. Um, and I would um, I would really say that spine surgery is leading the way in medicine here right now with, with these efforts. So it's very exciting how we can uh, really very quickly learn from each other and and underpin all this with real objective data.
2: I mean, I think it's really cool that you've built these in-house, you know, with your knowledge as a surgeon. Um, I'd actually be kind of curious to hear what you think in terms about the nece- the necessity of surgeons to have a leadership role in this, whereas you do, you do see a lot of the app ecosystem being really coming out of the tech and tech startups, but not necessarily surgeon-led.
0: I think it's crucial. Again, it's like uh, because, you know, if it's not uh, generated by a surgeon, it's yet another thing you have to do. And honestly, uh, every time we turn on Epic, I mean, I just get a cramp. I mean, it's just it is, uh, you know, (laughs) it is it is the nightmare of existence. I mean, my inbox has more than 4000 messages. Uh, and I refuse to open it because it would probably give me an instant heart attack. So I'll probably do that the night, the day before I retire, I open my inbox. Uh, but again, we are, we are flooded and there's no way out, out of there. Um, and so, we are all choking by side. Uh, I think, you know, being a surgeon, a physician is the, is the best job in the world, right? Right. Um, but if you don't see the results of your work anymore it becomes very tedious and and uh hospital the systems that are paid by administrators in hospitals that is just not on the priority list um so when i look at the app that the physician generated and again the whole group is it's a very we are very democratically organized and that you know people see what they want and then we implement it and so it's it's only Run by what patients want and by, by what physicians want, um, and we, we try to implement that. And just a couple months ago, we saw that uh, again. This whole ecosystem is only going to work if it makes our lives easier, um, and so that's what we're implementing right now. And I think that's where the great great strength comes in. Uh, for for example, right now we are working on automatic, uh, you know, you know the the HPI, you know, like you know producing that for the surgeon uh, because right now believe it or not you're collecting all the prompts then you go to the clinic you have a pdf that that is filled out or not often you don't even have time to look at it because you have to see 30 patients um, and it, it ends in a trash can and the patient signed it to fill it up and so this is you know like and the reason for that is it's so you know all these different systems that you work on there's no interest in anybody puts any effort into really you know putting all of this together make it easier make it more streamlined uh, i think it needs to be 100% physician you know driven uh, and patient driven because in the end of the day those are the two main players and i think it's a real opportunity right now especially with ai components to put into that i mean we see that right now as like well even the sign up right now is ai uh, driven of our app so you don't have to type anything in anymore just take a picture of your, of your screen and your the patient signed up um and so um it's uh it is really has opened doors uh and has made it much more fulfilling uh to be you know a surgeon because now you really see what what, what the results for work are and the patients love it because they're not left alone and, and have to call somebody who was hired five days ago and suddenly is an expert on my post-operative patients um and so especially with COVID, that was a very big part in that uh, we didn't have personal anymore. And that's where the whole thing really took off.
2: I'd actually be curious, you know, what was your experience? Since I, I, don't, do you, I don't know if you're a developer yourself, but what was your experience developing that in terms of like the how of getting that operationalized and live in your practice?
0: I'm definitely a better spine surgeon than I'm a, a developer. Um, <laughs> uh, just to tell you, so I've worked on this for seven years. Um, we have had it's entirely sponsored by grateful patients that have used this, and they've been just so excited about this that they have been sponsoring this. Um, and needless to say, that right now our version is a from ground up built new, the fifth version. Uh, wow, and we've made so many mistakes along the way is, again, the first, I mean, just, okay, I'll put myself out there. I mean, the first version that we <laughs> built seven years ago was a version we used the Google, uh, we used the Apple health kit. Um, and basically I just put it on the phone and it, it sort of sent those prompts out. And then I was thinking that, you know, two years afterwards, I'll just download an Excel file and that's how I'm going to write my paper. <laughs> Well, needless to say that, you know, h- half a year later, we looked at the actual <laughs> file and it was empty, you know, because, you know, what, The you know, patients, of course, they download it, but then, you know, nobody wants to do that if if there's no, you know, communication. People are, people like trees. We like to communicate and we, we grow in societies. Um, and so, um, you know, that's a big, big deal. And I had a, a, a super talented uh, um you know, resident uh, James Pound, who has been working on this with me the last year, and he's going to Stanford for a fellowship. Uh, and so he realized that and it was really his ideas, like you know, kind of healing together, building this community. Uh, which again, it sounds you know a little you know foolish, but but it, it I think it really is important. Uh, I see that now in the next level too, is where suddenly again, you know, I learned from Dr. docky at Nashville at Vanderbilt how he does his surgeries, how he does his blocks, and If suddenly we can learn from each other and we can talk and again my dream is that when I go to a meeting and we're starting to do this already that uh, the person on the podium is the best person to speak, you know has good outcomes can show the outcomes uh, and is not there for different reasons and I think we'll get there, uh, where we can really learn from people that have to share something meaningful. And not have to share some, you know, undisclosed, uh, you know, secondary interest. Which we all have, but um, I think, um, you know, I think there's something really, there's a real opportunity here.
1: Yeah, I, it's amazing to hear the success that that the two of you guys are having in New York City and in Seattle. Uh, I was talking about this paper and and some of the uh, different apps and technologies available uh, with some of the the uh, my colleagues here in in Charles in South Carolina, and the biggest thing that kept coming up was privacy and patient buy-in. And I think you, you do discuss this in the, in the limitations section, but I, I'd like to hear from, from the two of you, because how did you guys get patients to buy into this? How were you able to navigate that, um, that issue of privacy and making sure that um, none of their data was going to be um, somehow used uh, without their permission?
2: I can speak to my you know, my major use as a developer since we haven't actually deployed at NYU yet, is at Google and certainly um you know, patient dropout was, it was a tremendous, tremendous thing. I remember in the first uh, six months of us deploying our Parkinson's app, we had maybe I want to say seventy thousand downloads and of that about half of the individuals used it once and more than one data point was Maybe a tenth of that. <laughs> so there's a tremendous dropout. But in some ways, it sounds like, you know, I think Kristoff's really addressed that in some ways by this notion of, you know, really focusing on the user experience of patients and engaging them as part of a community. And so I'd love to hear kind of his thoughts on that question.
0: Yeah, no, I think, again, I, I, you know, it was really a lot of trial and error. Um, I think, again, uh, the engagement is actually, uh, you know, when you see a patient in clinic, uh, and you're like, hey, uh, we are downloading this app because I want to see how you do after the surgery. You can see the eyes opening. They're like, oh, you a surgeon? Actually, who cares who I'm going to do afterwards? Um, and so it's a very positive experience. Um, and uh, and so the take rate is in the low 90 or mid 90 percentage. So we we published it, again, in a spine paper and the European Spine Journal, where we just published it. I can know it was a little bit, maybe too late for your paper, but um, and uh, so the take rate is very, very high uh, because patients don't want to come back to the clinic and you spend two hours, you have to, they have to park, you look at the tiny little wound and then they go home. If, if, they're, if they're recovering well, it's a waste of everybody's time. Um, and so you telling them that, hey, you don't have we do virtual follow-ups again in the app um, and you don't have to come back. Uh, that is enough reason for them to uh, sign up. So there's, there's really almost never a patient who has a cell phone. I think that was a good po- point, Eric, in your paper too, where you mentioned that 60% of all old patients older than 70 have only a cell phone. I think that number is, at least in Seattle, it's much higher. It's like I have, again, two, three patients <laughs> per year that don't have a cell phone. I mean, people are just hooked on that stuff. Um, so it's it's I think the, the penetration of cell phones is much, much higher. Um, in terms of... Um, HIPAA compliance and, and, and patient confidentiality. Um, I think that's, um, I think that's, that's, that's a two folded, uh, question really. Um, question number one is who organizes this and who is behind this? I mean, I love it when my hospital administrators come to me, uh, and they're like, okay, well, you have a secondary interest. You're doing this research project. And I'm like, so you're working for Epic and you tell me that I have a secondary interest in care of my patients. So, um, Again, everybody has a secondary interest. uh, And obviously, uh, as a surgeon, I just want to have a fun job and know what's going to happen with my patients. Um, So we are only putting in the absolutely necessary details into the app. So we collect, uh, we don't collect the social security, do not add anything that we don't absolutely need. Uh, So there's no addresses in there. There's no social security number in there. There's uh, there's only a cell phone number in there for for recovering uh, any data. The main app does not store any real names, it's just initials because we don't, we're not in, in, the, in the end of the day. The the, the the big data set is only there for quality improvement um, and not to point out individuals, so we don't even store that data. Um, and uh, so that's one thing, and then the communications are all uh secured. Uh, I don't, I couldn't tell you how many. A bit security. But but again, we have the security standards uh, that are required. Uh, but again also adhere to the minimum shareable you know information. So I only I could see my own patients with names, but they're not showing up in the group. Uh, I don't need to see you know what you know Dr. Lynn McGrath's you know patients' names are, you know, I have no interest and no uh, that's none of my business. Uh, so we share only the data that is absolutely necessary to do the job, and the data outside the university, outside my 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 uh, practice, is only important to make it better for everybody. So that's so we very very much limit what data we enter, enter um, and we very much limit to who can see what, uh, and any um, any research effort data is de identified. So um, so that's kind of how we've handled it so far.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I have a, another question. So a big portion of this this uh, paper was related to smartphone apps, and I think there's definitely a lot of promise there, and, and clearly there's a lot of innovation that's going on. But a smaller, but I would say even uh, just as exciting, a portion of this paper was on wearable devices. It seems like right now uh, a lot of what is happening in the field of spine surgery and using wearable devices is trying to harness data from from technology that wasn't made for patients with spinal pathology, taking information from like an Apple watch or an Ua ring or Fitbit. There's nothing out there right now at least that I know of that's specifically designed for a, a patient with spinal pathology. I want to kind of make this just a little think tank here. If you guys could design a wearable device that was perfect for a spine patient that could get all the metrics that you wanted and, um, would be the most effective device? What, what do you guys think it would look like?
0: Not to put you all on the spot. Well, uh, I think it would help you to stop smoking. It would help you to, to lose some weight. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, that would be That's my answer. Priorities. Um, and then, you know, in, in terms of the, the real answer, that, and actually, I mean, like, the funny thing is like, uh, and Brian, you're going to see that during your, your career too, is, uh, you know, the most thankful patients are the ones that we encourage to stop smoking, encourage to lose weight before surgery. I mean, it's always worth it to, you know, to improve health, uh, general health. Um, now, in terms of technology, and I think that's Eric, I think that's where obviously you are like the, the, the superstar here right now to have that insight. Um, we initially like seven years ago, we thought about tapping into the accelerometer data of the phones. Uh, and we managed it, you know, we were able to do an iPhone 4S, you know, hack in there, get all of the information, no problem. The issue that we saw there is that, um, you know, once you have all the data and you, you that you have a very nice paragraph in the paper about this, is, you know, like, how do you define a step? How do you, you know, how do you define step symmetry? How do you define all this? I mean, this is all, you know, pre-processed data that we are then afterwards getting. Um, but it's very difficult to do that outside the phone itself because the data quantities that you get. So let's say even if you have a variable with the best accelerometer that you can can do, the data that you would uh, get to your you know uh, you know like you know like to your uh, to your database would be gigantic. Um, and I think in the end of the day, that's why we did decided to to just tone it down and take the stepping data, the geolocation data the data this is easily available both in the google uh, system as well as in the uh, apple um you know system to get that so uh, at this point right now, a variable device you know again, um I don't think it would add that much. The problem is then also then you would have to pay it you know if you were to give it to the patient um you know, it's not like a, um, you know, integrated device in a joint or something like that, that would be meaningful to give you additional data. Um, I think we're we're at the very beginning right now. And again, so right now we are just with the fifth iteration of the app right now, we're having more and more patients with one year follow-up right now. Again, this is how long it takes. Um, And so now we're seeing the limitations. Now the cool thing about all these data and uh, as you know, Eric, I mean, like the, 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 um, Apple and the Googles, they store all these data, uh, these data for six years. So you can actually, uh, now go back and it's not even, I don't even know how to call it. It's not even perspective. It's like, you know, it's like, we need to find a new term for that data because it, it is just there, mm-hmm. you know, you have a patient that you get to the de- surgery and you see how they walked the last six years before surgery. They didn't even know you. It's like before they were born. Um, so, uh, it's a new, uh, Maybe Brian, that's something for you for after this podcast, you come up with a new term for this because it's not retrospective, it's not prospective, it's just perspective. I don't know what, what you would call it. <laughs> um, but, exactly. But, yeah. But that's that's a cool thing. So it's a it's a it's it's a whole new um, array of possibilities. Uh, I don't think the variables right now would add that much, uh, and it also it, it adds a big barrier to that because you have to get the device, you have to sync it with the phone, then you again all the technologies like. Every second in a clinical practice counts. You know, if you sign up a patient and it takes, right now with our Spine Healthy app, it takes me three minutes to sign up a patient and it's too long. It's already a barrier that nobody can overcome. So the next iteration should save me time. We'll see if that's true. If you ever invite me back or come to us, then you'll see it. But the next iteration of the app should save time in, in my clinic. Um, we'll see if I succeed. <laughs> What about you, Dr.
2: Warman? I could agree. Yeah, I mean, I could agree more with what Christoph said. Um, yeah, I, I think um, certainly, um, well, I also appreciate the excitement around wearables. You know, I agree with Christoph that I think currently they introduce more limitations, especially in terms of the difficulty of deploying them. Um, if You need to furnish them yourselves. I'm taking a huge cost. And then they require different charging apparatuses, you know, maybe different habits for your patients, whereas, you know, almost everyone has a smartphone, that they're used to charging, used to keeping on them. And while the use of the smartphone over the wearable does introduce extra noise into the data that makes things like accelerometers suddenly much less interesting because they're much more noisy. When you take one level up in abstraction on the data, like Kristoff does, suddenly they become really useful on top of having all those practical benefits. Um, You know, I think if I could, to answer your question, I could design the ideal device it would be something with unlimited battery life that people always carry in the exact same spot uh, that has you know, that rich battery of accelerometers and gyroscopes to maybe get to that more detailed data. I think to me, that would be very interesting scientifically. I know that for our Google watch work, um, there were some really cool things we did do with the accelerometers, especially looking at postural stability um, when patients are just standing still. But the value add over Ultimately, with our wearable work with the watch, we ended up using step count, mean displacement on the, the, um, on the, uh, the geolocation data, you know, again, kind of those high level features anyways, and so I really think that the design principles that Christoph just mentioned are currently the state of the art, and I don't really think they're going to change tremendously in the near future, barring you know, some advances, advances in the hardware and people's habits.
0: I think uh, to your sorry to your point, Eric is uh, what we decided to do is you know we're collecting those basic data right now and uh, you know again and sort of look for clinical relevance uh, and then go from there because again there's there's uh, really no uh, not a single study or people are starting I think there's one study the one from uh, Dr. Wang where they looked at correlation of prompts with stepping Uh, so that's very very infancy of that so we we are just right now collecting that data. And so we have now 500 patients with uh, complete prompts and stepping data. And so that's where you kind of start seeing what's relevant. And once we have, you know, kind of hunkered down that and sort of analyzed it, then we're planning to look at more data, but it's just so much that, you know, again, I just remember when we download the accelerometer data, it's just, it's just so much information and there's nothing you can do with that. I guess it's just really difficult uh, to analyze at least for a neurosurgeon who is very, you know, we just, uh, we don't have that type of capability. So,
1: All right, all, I think we have to wrap up. We're getting close to the end of time. I want to thank all of you guys for, for coming together and, and uh, discussing this very interesting topic. Thank you, Dr. Orman for, uh, this publication and sharing it with the, the neurosurgical and, and spine community. Um, and as we wrap up, I, of course, got to mention the CNS podcast activities available to claim for 1.5 CME by visiting the podcast page on cns.org. And please join us next month for the next journal club podcast. Thank you everyone for joining us and we'll see you next time.